But as long as you're living in his universe, we should bow our stiff necks. We should bend our stubborn knees. And with the Lord Jesus, we should say, there is no unrighteousness in God. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of Romans chapter 9, we've been looking at the doctrine or teaching of predestination. In particular, we've been looking at whether God predetermines all things or whether He merely is aware of how all things will turn out. In today's message entitled, The Mercy and Judgment of God, we see in our passage from verses 14 to 18 that regardless of how things turn out, God is still an all-loving and merciful God. Take the Word of God this morning, would you, and turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9 is a very fascinating chapter, probably one of the most fascinating in all of the New Testament. This chapter reminds me of an experience I had this past summer. My wife and I went to the beach down at Fripp Island, and the surf was really strong. And I found myself being pulled out. In fact, that day, uh, three people drowned. And there's that feeling when you can't touch bottom where you realize how big the ocean is and how small you are. Well, if you've ever had that experience swimming, you may have that experience today as we delve into Romans chapter 9. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through Paul's epistle to the Romans. In the last five weeks, we've been in the ninth chapter, and there's some very deep doctrinal water here. And when you read a, a passage like this, some people are tempted to say, well, this is way over my head. I'll never go swimming out here again. I'm going to stay away from the, this kind of ocean of doctrine and just stay close to shore. Well, you can choose to do that. And certainly, these are deep doctrines. Just to read verse 18 is enough to drown you that God has mercy on whom He desires and He hardens whom He desires. And if you're here for the first time, you might think, well... Pastor, can't you preach a sermon that will help me to feel good or give me a better self-image or build up my family? And I indeed preach sermons like that, but I'm preaching the next text, and I know this is not the section of Scripture that draws members in. But I want to be able to say with the Apostle Paul that I've been obedient to preach the whole counsel of Scripture. God has called us not just to give people spiritual sugar, but spiritual broccoli because they need a, a balanced diet. And in every passage of Scripture, if we have ears to hear and eyes to see, there's practical application for us today. But I have to warn you, this section is not for the faint of heart today. So follow along. Romans chapter 9, we want to begin in verse 14 where we left off last time. Paul asks, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. I told you a few weeks ago that if you want to create a controversy in a church, all you have to do is preach on divine election. But when God speaks on an issue, we cannot be silent. 
And this is really a, a good time for us to be in Romans 9 through 11 because this whole issue of divine election, especially in the last decade or so, has come forefront into evangelical churches. And so I am asked very often, what is this church's view on Calvinism? And in asking that question and answering that, I realize some of you say, well, I don't really care. And others of you say, I don't even know what the question is. But let me just summarize Calvinism as it relates to salvation. It basically says that in eternity past, God chose to save certain people and allow other people to go to damnation, that God was going to save just a certain number of people. And because of this, they say that Christ did not die for all people, but just for the elect, that his atonement was particular, it was limited only to those who would believe. And furthermore, they would argue that the Holy Spirit draws just a select few, and when he draws one of the elect, one of those select few, that it is impossible to resist him. And Romans chapter 9 is one of the principal chapters that people use to teach this thing that we call Calvinism. But the mystery that shrouds divine election is often lifted when we let the Scripture speak for itself. So let me just remind you of the context. Remember, any text without a context is a pretext. And if you ignore the context, then you can miss what God is trying to say and come up with things that He is not saying. Now, when you end chapter 8, chapter 9 is kind of surprising because the contrast is so dramatic. In fact, you could easily have gone from Romans 8.39 that nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus right into Romans 12.1. Therefore, present yourself to God as a living and holy sacrifice and not have skipped a beat. It would have, flow, it would have flown perfect, perfectly. But chapter 12 doesn't follow chapter 8. Chapters 9 through 11 does. And it does for a purpose. Now, notice how the chapter begins. He says in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. He ends chapter 8 rejoicing. He begins chapter 9 in great despair. He ends chapter 8 looking at Christ with his heart overwhelmed and filled with joy. In chapter 9, he looks at his Hebrew people and he weeps. And then he makes that amazing statement of grief here in verse 3. Notice, For I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul was willing to be cursed and separated from Christ if it could somehow mean the salvation of his Jewish brethren. He's a remarkable man. He told the Philippians he was willing to stay out of heaven for the sake of the saved. And he tells the Romans he's willing to go to hell for the sake of the lost. And the one truth that makes it even heavier on him is the unique privilege that God had given to the nation of Israel. And so we studied in one of the messages seven privileges in verses 4 and 5. The blessings of God that should have led them to repentance, but instead it led them to pride and hardness of heart. Then we studied in verses 6 through 13 how, go, how God chose Israel and his choosing of Israel as a nation was not a mistake. It was part of his sovereign decision that the problem was not with God's choice. The problem was with Israel's response. Now, some Christians, as I've already noted, understand the Abrahamic covenant to be conditional in nature. There are certainly conditional covenants that God makes with the nation of Israel. 
Meaning, if you do something, then I will do this. But God also makes some unconditional covenants, what he calls an everlasting covenant, a unilateral covenant that had absolutely nothing to do with Israel and everything to do with God. But they have concluded that the promises made to Israel are done and over with and that the church has become the new Israel. And so when they come to Romans chapter 9, they don't see national election, they see individual election. And so, beginning with the presupposition that God has abandoned Israel, when they come to verse 7 or verse 13, they develop a distorted view of the doctrine of election. Verse 7, if you remember, is a quotation from Genesis 21. Through Isaac, your descendant will be named. And we saw how God chose Isaac over Ishmael because both boys could not be progenitors of a family of people that would bring the Messiah. That did not mean that God chose Isaac to go to heaven and Ishmael to go to hell. Ishmael, we saw, was gathered to his people. There were only two people in his life at that point who had died, Abraham and his mother, and both were believers. And we saw the six other usages of the identical phrase in the Old Testament, and in every instance it's used only of believers. In equivalent New Testament terms, we would say, he went home to be with the Lord. Then we saw the quotation from Malachi 1, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And we saw that God did not literally hate and despise Esau, that it had the same usage that Jesus gives it in the New Testament. It's a Hebraism when he says that you should hate your father and mother. He didn't mean that you should literally hate them, but that he must be first in your life, that you must choose him over father and mother and brother and sister, and that unless you hate them, you cannot be my disciple. And we saw that this quotation from Malachi 1 looks all the way back to the book of Genesis when Rebekah has a divine sonogram and God says, two nations are in your womb and the older will serve the younger. And God chooses one nation, the descendants of Jacob, over the descendants of Esau. But from these verses, because of presuppositions that Calvinists impose on the Word of God, they say that God chooses some to go to heaven and chooses others to go to hell. And this is often packaged as Calvinism or Reformed theology or replacement theology. But they begin with the false premise that God is done with the people of Israel. And so they would say today, well, God chooses some to go to heaven, some to go to hell, some to be saved, some to be damned, and that you have absolutely no say in it. And they argue that it's really not up to man to decide whether or not he will go up to, to heaven or down to hell. It's decided beforehand by God. Now, I don't have anything personally against John Calvin. There's a lot of things he said that I admire and I respect that were absolutely true. But there are other things that he said and actions that he took that I totally disagree with. And so he pastored a church in Geneva, not really a church, a city, because in his theology, you could not separate the political dimension from the spiritual dimension. He believed that Geneva should be like a theocracy in the Old Testament. And so if there was theological heresy, that it should be dealt with as they dealt with it in Israel with capital punishment. And so one man, for instance, Michael Servetus, who allegedly did not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, wrote John Calvin often. And on one occasion, he sent him a marked up copy of his own work called The Institutes. Calvin wrote The Institutes only after he'd been saved about two years. 
And yet that represents his theology. Listen, I don't know of any Christian that has his ducks in order after he's been saved only two years. In either case, he marked up his book and Calvin in response wrote to his friend William Farrow in February of 1546 and said that if this man, Michael Servetus, came to Geneva, he said, quote, for if he came as far as my authority goes, I would not let him leave alive. Well, he eventually came and heard and sat in Calvin's church and listened to him preach. And uh, Calvin had him executed. Now, Calvin wanted him hung, but they burned him alive at the stake. And it was a slow, agonizing death that history records. They used green wood and they put a wreath of sulfur around his head. Now, I suppose that's one way to keep your church doctrinally pure. But quite honestly, I would have rather have prayed for him if indeed he was a false teacher and won him to Christ. But if you believe the elect are already predetermined, they don't have any choice, then why even pray? And I know all the arguments they give as to why they should pray. But if God has already chosen and selected who is going to be saved and others to be lost, then there's really no need to pray because it's going to happen. Yet Paul, when we sit, come to the 10th chapter, we will see he prays for lost people. He will say, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Listen, don't even waste your breath in praying for the elect if it's automatic. Don't pray for your lost relatives, your lost children, your lost friends, your lost neighbors. Listen, Calvinism, in my view, is in many ways a form of fatalism. But my Bible says of the Lord Jesus, quoting him, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. You know any people ever born into this world that God did not consider lost? My Bible says in 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement that deserves your full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know anyone in the, born into this world that God did not consider sinful? But if you start with certain presuppositions, it's going to influence the way you interpret the Bible. So Calvin believed that the church, the body of Christ, had replaced Israel. And so in his letter called A Response to Questions and Objections of a Certain Jew, he wrote these words, There, theirs, meaning the Jews, their rotten and unbending stiff-neckedness deserves that they be oppressed unendingly and without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. Now I'm sure Calvin had to apologize for that when he met the Lord. But please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that every 21st century Reformed teacher would espouse what Calvin says here. They would be embarrassed by his anti-Semitic statements. But what I'm wanting you to see is that because John Calvin, as a baby Christian, which is what he was when he wrote the Institutes, did not really understand the Abrahamic Covenant. And so when he came to Romans chapter 9, he didn't see national election, God choosing a nation. He saw personal election. And again, presuppositions that are formed outside of Scripture are not to be imposed upon the Scripture. And when we do that, you really complicate the Bible. You know, I go to different parts of the world sometimes that I'm privileged to go and minister where people have had no formal education, no seminary degrees, and they read Romans 9 through 11, and they don't see anything that John Calvin saw. In fact, if you just ask someone to sit down without the aid of some high-powered theologian and read Romans 9 through 11, and you ask them in one word, what is it about? They'll say Israel. Most of them have never even heard of John Calvin. 
Now, I know what some skeptics and critics will say in light of what I've just said. They'll say, Pastor, you've confirmed for me everything I've ever believed. You've proven my point. The Bible is an impossible book to understand. Therefore, I reject it. Listen, that's just an excuse to live immorally. Certainly, people have abused the Bible and they've made it say things that it did not say because they took the Bible out of context. And so Psalm 14 begins with the words, in our English Bible, there is no God. But if you read it contextually, it says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Certainly, as the Apostle Peter said, there are some portions of Scripture that are difficult to understand. That's why James says in chapter 3, let not many of you become teachers. A new baby Christian should not be a teacher. Paul warns against that in 1 Timothy 3, lest it become conceited and fall into the snare of the devil. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that we shall incur a stricter judgment. The same thing Paul said to Timothy of the need to study, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who's not ashamed, accurately handling the Word of God. And so in the last few weeks, we've looked at a number of these quotations from the Old Testament. And when we went back and looked at them in their original historical context, we saw that verses 7 and 13 have absolutely nothing to do with personal election and everything to do with national election. These verses are not God saying, I've elected you to go to heaven and you to go to hell. They have absolutely nothing to do with that. that I've, but what they have to do is that God is saying, out of all the nations, out of all the peoples on the earth, I've selected this people, the Hebrew people, the people of Israel, to bring the Messiah into this world. God had to decide whether or not he would bring Messiah through Isaac's offspring or through Ishmael's offspring. He had to decide whether he would bring it through Jacob's offspring or Esau's offspring. When I got married, I had to make a choice. I had to decide whether I was going to marry Elaine or whether I was going to marry Audrey. Audrey's up there saying, who's Elaine? <laughs> Just by way of illustration, it's in the realm of fiction. Now, I could have mentioned Debbie or Mar or... No, that, that, I'm just joking. The truth is everyone wanted to marry Audrey, but God predestined her to marry me. In either case, please, 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 please don't let anyone tell you that Romans 9 is saying that before Ishmael was born, before Isaac was born, before Jacob was born, before Esau was born, before any of those babies saw the light of day that God predetermined two of them to go to heaven and two of them to go to hell. This section of Scripture is simply teaching that God had a plan for the descendants of Isaac and Jacob that He did not have for, the, for Ishmael and Esau. Now, when we come into the text today, the plot thickens even more. For God to select the Jews to be His chosen people makes some people mad. In fact, people have forever been wanting to exterminate the Jewish people. Throughout history, though, God has protected them. They're His chosen nation because, one, He is going to bring them, He's going to use them to bring the Messiah into the world the first time, and two, He's going to use this same group of people to bring about the second coming of Christ from heaven. So anticipating the objections that people would have that God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world, Paul asks this in verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Is it wrong for God to choose one nation over another? 
Well, we have no right to question the judgments of God. If you don't like the judgments that God has made in his universe, then go make your own universe and make up your own rules. But as long as you're living in his universe, we should bow our stiff necks. We should bend our stubborn knees. And with the Lord Jesus, we should say, there is no unrighteousness in God. Paul simply answers, may it never be. May God It's a very strong adversative. Absolutely not. Perish the thought by no means. Don't be ridiculous as it's rendered in different translations. And so to defend his answer, Paul gives two illustrations. The first concerning Moses, who sought to lead the people of Israel righteously. The second concerning Pharaoh, who sought to lead the people of Israel unrighteously. So if you want to use your note-taking outline, first, I want us to think about God's sovereignty in pardoning erring Israel. Now, we've seen throughout the ninth chapter that Paul is using illustrations from the Old Testament, which reveal that God is choosing Israel in which to bring his Christ. It's part of his sovereign election of them as a nation. We saw in verses 7 through 9, his choice of Isaac over Ishmael, and then in 10 through 13, his choice of Jacob over Esau. And now once again, Paul takes us back into the Old Testament to Exodus 33 to see God's sovereign choice expressed again. Look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you will see in the New American Standard that that is in all capital letters, because that is alerting you to the fact that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. And if you have a Bible with marginal notes and you went out into the margin, you would discover that this comes from Exodus 33 and verse 19. So hold your finger here or put a marker in it and go to the book of Exodus. It's easy to find. It's the second book of the Old Testament. Now, if you read Exodus chapters 30, 32 and 33, you will see that it will set up the background for the understanding of the quotation that Paul makes here in Romans 9. Um, in Exodus 33, God reminds us that he is merciful and compassionate to the people of Israel after a wicked sin that they commit. Uh, if you remember, uh, Moses is up on the mountain of God. He comes down and he finds the people living in idolatry, living in gross sin. And God could have destroyed the nation after she had built that golden calf. But instead, he chose to lead them and protect them into the promised land. Now, very often the term mercy in the Bible, and we're going to see how it's used in this context this morning, is used not always in reference to a personal expression of mercy. God's mercy is safe for you. But sometimes the term mercy is used to describe God's covenant mercy. God's mercy that he shows on a whole nation, on national deliverance. And that's how it's going to be used today, as we will see. So he's been up on the mountain of God, also called Mount Sinai, also called Mount Paran, also called Mount Horeb. All the same mountain in the scripture. When Moses leaves the presence of God, having received the Ten Commandments of God, and he comes down from the mountain after 40 days, the people are drunk, they're living in sexual immorality, and they're worshiping at a golden calf. And God knows, after God speaks directly to Moses about what he's going to come down and find, that the nation should be destroyed. Pick it up in Exodus 32 and verse 27. 
We're going to see initially 3,000 people die that day when the tribe of Levi is commanded by Moses to go in and execute the instigators. Notice 32 in verse 27. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Now Moses recognizes that the nation as a whole shares the guilt. There were certainly some who led in the rebellion, but he realizes that the whole nation shares in the guilt. And when he recounts this event in the book of Deuteronomy, he quotes something that God says, where God says, I want to destroy the whole bunch of them. And so Moses goes, and after 3,000 are dead, and God has everyone's attention, and he goes and he intercedes for the whole nation. Look at verse 30 here of chapter 32. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, please note, Moses says, God, if you refuse to forgive their sin, then I want my name blotted out of your book. Now, some confuse this book with the book of life in the New Testament, also called the Lamb's Book of Life. I preached a sermon once on God's library. God actually has a number of different books in his library. And the book of life is not to be confused with this book that we could call, say, the book of the living. God promises in reference to the book of life that no one's name will ever be blotted out. Let me read to you Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. There God said, he who overcomes, and if you've read the seven churches, you know that overcomers are the true believers. We're not saved by perseverance, but those who are saved will persevere. They will overcome. And so for John, an overcomer are those who give true worship. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." Now, please notice what Revelation 3 and verse 5 does not say. It does not say that, that those who do not overcome will be blotted out. That's a logical fallacy that some people make. A statement that can be true one way is not necessarily true the other way. Just because all dogs are animals does not mean that all animals are dogs. Revelation 3 and verse 5 uses a figure of speech that's used both in Greek and in English, and in English we call it the totes. The totes is a figure of speech used for emphasis in which you state a positive truth in a negative way. We do it often in English. Like we'll say, for instance, you won't be sorry, meaning you'll be glad. Or we might say, uh, I will never stop loving my wife, meaning not I will stop loving her, but that I want to always love her. And this is what Paul is saying when he speaks of these overcomers who do not worship the Antichrist, that their names will not be blotted out of the book of life. Revelation 3.5 is a figure of speech to emphasize our eternal security. To listen again to today's message entitled, The Mercy and Judgment of God, Use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app, available for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
And if you'd like a CD or DVD copy, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM47, entitled The Mercy and Judgment of God. Perhaps you have a question you'd like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow we continue our look at the mercy and judgment of God. Join us then as we search the scriptures.